Welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer Albert Watson. Albert Watson is a Scottish photographer based in New York City and has been a working photographer for over 50 years. His work has appeared on more than 100 Vogue magazine covers, as well as Rolling Stone, Time, and Harper's Bazaar, to name a few. Albert has photographed everyone from Alfred Hitchcock to Michael Jackson, Steve Jobs, Kanye West, and Kate Moss, to name a few. Photo District News named Albert one of the 20 most influential photographers of all time, along with photographers such as Irving Penn and Richard Avedon. Albert is a true photographic icon, so it was a true pleasure to get a chance to speak with him at his studio in New York City. So I hope you guys enjoy, and thanks so much for listening. All right, well, Albert Watson, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it, uh, you taking the time. To start off, I just want to kind of talk to you about uh, where you grew up and kind of how you got into photography initially. Well, I was born in Scotland. I was born in Edinburgh, which is the capital of Scotland. And uh, I really didn't have much contact with photography until I was about 15. And uh, there was one day I just borrowed my father's box brownie, an old box camera, that took 127 film. I'm sure that they don't make that anymore. <laughs> and uh, I, I went around and I did some pictures with it and I was very excited. To, I think the biggest excitement was back then, of course it wasn't in any way digital and you were, you would put them into the local pharmacy and basically you wait a few days and then you get them back. And uh, I, I remember being really excited when I got the pictures back. I, I, I remember that feeling of just anticipation when I opened them up. And, uh, and in fact, there was a couple of those shots that we used in our new book that came from that box brownie shooting when I was 15. And uh, we put two of them in my, you know, in my new book. Uh, so I had no real contact from, with photography for another six years, which when I was 21. And at that, that point, uh, I was at art college, and uh, I, I basically did a, a, a course which was connected with St. Andrews University, which is just north of Edinburgh. And I, I did a course which was four years, uh, two years with general art, and then two years of specialization. And then the two years of specialization were in graphic design. Uh, but in the first year of my spe specialization in graphic design, um, I got a hold of a camera, and then I began really all the time shooting. So I was still being trained as a graphic designer, and then just at that period of time, I was able, uh, I, I won a scholarship to come to the States for a month, mm -hmm. uh, and I traveled around the States visiting designers, and uh, I went to the Aspen Design Conference in 66. Uh, then I went back to Scotland. I had sat the entrance exam to the Royal College of Art Film School. Uh, so I then went there for three years. Uh, that took me up to 69. Uh, I basically taught for one year. Uh, and then in 1970, myself and my family uh, moved to America. My wife got a teaching job and I moved in as her dependent. And in 1970 was my first real year really working as a photographer, starting out with a little portfolio trying to trying to make it as a wow. photographer. So 1970 was my first year. So yeah. I ended up with four years of training in graphic design and art and three years at film school. Wow, that's pretty amazing to hear you kind of were studying graphic design and then film school. Like when you're kind of going through that process, did you think you were gonna be a still photographer at that point or what kind of stuff were you working on at that point? When did kind of still photography kind of take over for you? I think it was a slow, steady curve when I went, even when I went to film school, uh, and I spent a lot of my evenings working in, uh, basically, in the darkroom, uh, which I was able to get into in the photography school at the Royal College of Art, and I would go over there and pretend that it was projects for my film school projects, and of course it was really just personal projects that I was just shooting, mm -hmm. taking pictures whenever I could, and borrow the equipment whenever I could. Uh, over at the photography school. So I spent maybe about 20% of my time at the photography school and then 80%, of course, I, w I had to 
yeah, study <laughs> to be a you know a director. So, but a lot of that training, and if you look at the work now, and a lot of that training in graphics and film, it's written all over the work now. Mm. You can you can see it. It's it's not didn't diversify away from graphics or film. It's written all over the work. Yeah, definitely. So you, you feel like going through the art school and everything was a useful experience for you? It was... Uh, the art Seven years at art college was invaluable. Mm. There, I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't got that training. And the training was very strict and quite old school in a way. Uh, so I was I was very happy. But then, of course... In 1970, in a way, I had to then start really learning how to light as a still photographer. I had some experience with lighting for film, uh, but I really had to, to start learning. And I really, in 1970, 71, I really buckled down and then began to learn things, which was painful because I'm not naturally technically inclined. A lot of time people look at the work and think I'm very technical, uh, but I'm, I'm really not. The, the creative is the most dominant thing and then the technical kind of follows along uh, I mean a, a really sharp quality image photographically well done is is okay but when the to change it into something special you need charisma in the image so therefore when you com combine a charismatic image with a very good quality photographic quality then, uh, th then the results are very good. So you feel like a lot of your work, it's kind of like uh, finding an idea and then kind of figuring out how to execute that with like the technical and the lighting stuff. Is that how you kind of start um, when you kind of are working on a project? Kind you know, of? I, th I think that, you know, what you say in real estate, it's location, location, location. I think for photography, it's preparation, preparation, preparation. Mm. And the preparation part should not be confused with like making sure that your batteries are charged for your cameras and that you have the necessary lenses and that your, lens, your camera's working. Yeah. These I take as a given and I would almost have them as at the end of things as like 5% of what, what should be done. Now, it's an important 5% because obviously if the camera doesn't work then you don't have an image. So I'm not saying it's not important, it's very important. But a lot of time people spend all of their time making sure all the equipment's packed and that's their preparation. Mm -hmm. And whereas really working on what you're doing, who you're photographing, what the history of the person is that you're gonna be photographing or what fashion are you doing if it's fashion, what kind of fashion are you doing, what's, what's the mood for the fashion, what's the overall you know, deciding factor of the fashion. You know? mm -hmm. Um, what's, what's, it, what's your end product here? So a lot of that you should really be working about and thinking about that. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I was kind of interested about, um, like looking at your work, you, you shoot so many different things from like portraits to landscape, you've done fashion and everything. Um, when you were kind of first starting out, I guess maybe like in art school, um, what kind of stuff were you photographing and what kind of, when you first kind of started out, what were you kind of interested in? Well, I mean, it's kind of, Strange. I mean, even back in in film school and and art school, I might be on a Sunday going out very early to photograph the Salvation Army, who were doing kind of gospel singing and and playing, and they would. I, I would spend time with them because I found them fascinating to photograph. So. I might be doing something like that one day, but then another day I might be photographing at the fashion school at the Royal College of Art and trying to get a model to pose for me and borrow some clothes from the fashion department that I could do clothes on her and she would do her own hair and makeup and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, and I would try and do the best I could with the model in front of me. Mm -hmm. uh, so back then I did a lot of different things and back in, when I finally got to LA and began really working as a photographer, you, you did a little bit of everything. You did a little bit of uh, you know, fashion, you did a little bit of insurance ads, you did still lifes. I mean, I shot a lot of still lifes because I could make some money on shooting still lifes. I did hospital appliances for a 
hospital catalog. Mm. I mean, you, you know, you did anything you could, but everything somehow was beneficial. Definitely. Uh, and then when I'm working now, I draw on all of that stuff. So not only the educational part, but I, I remember being there at midnight and one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, trying to figure out how to photograph a bedpan, you know, for a hospital appliance catalog. Uh, and all of these things were beneficial. And I never really gave up on that broad hit at photography, mm. meaning landscape, still life, celebrities, fashion. Obviously fashion was a very dominant part and I found myself doing fashion, you know, month after month after month after month. Uh, and I did many campaigns and many editorial shoots and covers for magazines and so on. Was fashion something you like had an interest in or did it kind of this kind of fall in your lap because that, that's what uh, there's kind of a big market for that or how did that kind of fashion stuff happen? I think I was interested and I was fascinated. I, I felt there was something that I could have control over. Mm. In other words, you could, a lot of times in editorial uh, discussions with the editor, uh, it, it's obviously very much fashion is a group thing. You need, you need nowadays you need a brilliant hairdresser to work with, uh, and makeup artist. You need a brilliant model, and you need a, most of most of all you need a, a really good fashion editor, and a fashion editor is 50% stylist and 50% art director. That's what an editor is. A stylist is a stylist. But uh, definitely an editor is someone who brings an artistic view to the, the clothes, you know. Yeah. So it's very important that you have all of these components working mm. together. And I just was always interested in that. And uh, I said recently to, to a young photographer that was doing his best to get started, and that's the same as I did. I did my best to get started. Um, I, I said, remember, you, you've your situation is harder than my situation because I'm working with the best hair and makeup in the world and I'm working with the best editors in the world. Mm. And I said, you're working on your own trying to put this together. Yep. I said, so you're, the images that you put for your portfolio to beat mine, it's a, it's a, it's a hard slog for you. Mm. So you have to do something ex, extra, extra special and unique. Yeah. Uh, but in my case, you always have to think really that in, in my case, I have restrictions um, because although that I have freedom in editorial to approach the shooting from a certain angle, it could be that I find myself having to photograph absolutely Saint Laurent, Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren. Yeah. I think when you're starting out, you can choose whatever clothes you like. And in fact, you could do a very, very good shooting, which I did recently just with vintage clothing mm. you know only vintage stuff uh, but it was the collaborative effort in fashion that was I found interesting that's interesting and like how you're kind of mentioning before like when you were in LA and kind of first starting out and you're like photographing everything from like different like insurance ads and whatnot um, like at that point did you even have like a like a grand goal like down the future was there like something you were kind of striving for at that point or was it this kind of you're kind of taking what was kind of coming at you because looking at you now like everyone you're really famous for like all the celebrity stuff like Steve Jobs and Mike Tyson and everyone under the sun was that kind of always your goal or when, how did that kind of all of this kind of I, I don't think it I don't think it was really always a goal I kind of which sounds a bit trite but always the next picture was the next goal uh, that was what was really important. So, uh, you know, when I was in my studio in L.A. and I was thinking of moving to New York and I got a call from Harper's Bazaar and they said, we want you to photograph somebody famous. Have you ever photographed somebody famous before? And I said, no. And they said, well, we'd like you to photograph Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock. Wow. So consequently, uh, I knew that that would be important to do that well. Yeah. And I, at the time, I did it the best I, I could with the knowledge I had. I'd really only been working really as a photographer at that point, three years. Uh, so I had to come up with something that was, that was quite good. And they had wanted Alfred Hitchcock to hold a plate of a, a goose because he was going to give a recipe on how to cook a Christmas goose to the magazine. And I was illustrating that, okay. that recipe, as it were. Yeah. And uh, I called the magazine back and said, 
I thought him holding a plate wasn't a great idea, you know, a tray with a goose on it. Uh, I, I said, first of all, it's, it's a little bit awkward. And I said, he always has a bow tie, Alfred Hitchcock, and he's going to look like a maitre d' bringing the t- So I said, it, it's fun if we take the goose uh, and it looks like he's strangling the goose. It's more Hitchcock. Yeah. And I can put some Christmas decoration around the neck. And he said, uh, that's absolutely... Uh, the the magazine loved it and he loved the idea of that yeah. and uh, and then that shot went on to be very well known from me yeah and one thing I was going to ask you about it which I've always been kind of interested in at your work especially with that photo um, like looking at everything you've done over your career and that photo was sh- like what year was that photo shot you think 73 and even looking at the stuff you do now it, it still fits in with like the style that you shoot now like it it, it with like a lot of the stuff you shoot in the studio with could be like Kanye West or something you do like these really amazing photos where it might be on white and uh, the one thing I was kind of curious about um, I think a lot of photographers struggle with is kind of finding their unique like vision or their kind of photographic signature um, did that take you a while to kind of get to the point where you kind of felt like you got to a point where you kind of understood how you photographed and the style um, if that makes sense like kind of I think what happened between 1970 uh, when I began doing a bit of everything, but I did do quite a bit of fashion, mm. and I was doing a lot of cosmetic advertising. The, in the in the 1970s, uh, I was much more of kind of a, a handheld guy, and a much more kind of casual, spontaneous photography. And when I got into the early 80s, like 80, by the time I got to 81, I'd been a photographer 11 years at that point. Uh, there was something that kicked back in from my early training as a graphic designer and uh, just art training. And the pictures began in the 84, 85, 86, by that time, began to get a little bit more powerful, a little bit more graphic. Uh, I had done a personal project up in Canada, basically of cowboys and Indians uh, in 1979. And uh, it, at that point, uh, I went to the Calgary Stampede, and a lot of those pictures are very strong and, and very graphic. So I noticed that when I was on my own, I went back to a much more graphic style. And when I was shooting for a magazine, which was very, I was very popular by that time in the late 70s, and I was handheld, uh, this was very popular. So by the time I got to the 80s, I switched more and more towards graphic strength mm. and graphic power and so on mm. and fashion ed- editors began to complain that my work was getting too heavy and too strong but of course as that happened uh, the work was more absolutely uh, kind of what can I say uh, a little bit more iconic mm. and a lot of pictures that you look at now are like that but of course Looking all the way back into the, the early 70s, if you look at the Hitchcock shot, that's pretty iconic. Yeah. So it was probably always there, but I began to switch, switch some of that style into fashion mm. so that the fashion became heavier and, and more iconic looking. Yeah, that's interesting. Because um, like I was saying, like you shoot so many different things from landscapes to still life and everything. And how do you think you've been able to manage to like shoot all those different styles? Because like when you're working like commercially, it seems like sometimes like, you know, it could be a magazines and things like that. They kind of want to pigeonhole you into one thing. They want to be able to this like call one guy, be like this guy shoots football or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, how do you think you've been able to manage those all those different kind of like realms of photography, be it fashion, still life, celebrity and whatnot? Um, I don't really know. Mm. Uh, but. All I know is that if I was going to go to the island of Skye off the coast of Scotland and spend six weeks there with, a, you know, three assistants photographing landscapes, hmm. then I was super excited to be doing it, super passionate about doing it. I wanted to do it. I was desperate to do it. So I went and did it. Yeah. So uh, a lot of projects are, are like that for me. If sometimes there's a, a more commercial project comes along, uh, then I'm always trying to do the the best that I can on the day, mm. and and sometimes I'm more I'm, I'm sympathetic sometimes with ad agencies 
that have worked on a drawing with a client for six months, mm. and they come in and they want me to shoot the drawing. Yeah. And uh, very often, I, 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 rather than sitting down with them and arguing with them right away, and disagreeing with what their concept was, yeah. sometimes I found it much more beneficial that I could look at the, the drawing and very quickly achieve that drawing. Really, sometimes in under an hour, and really satisfy them and say that that's really your, to within half an inch, it's your drawing. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I brought that to life in a photo. Uh, but then I would say, now I'm going to do one, one or two other things here. Uh, and I, I feel that, uh, that 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 was always important. Yeah. There's a well-known, in my head, a well-known case from the, uh, the late 70s, it's early 80s, and I remember it was for a, cosme a big cosme cosmetic campaign and uh, the girl came down, she was dressed, she looked very good, uh, kind of early in the morning, she was there at eight, we, I got her about 10, 30, it was a lot of hair and makeup. And I did a Polaroid of the, of the shot and I looked at the Polaroid and I thought, that's pretty good already. And I, I showed it to the creative director and the creative director said, Wow, that looks quite good already. I said, yeah. He said, but I think we should change the blouse. And I said, okay, let's change the blouse. So because we changed the blouse, there was a detail on the blouse, so we had to change the hair to accommodate the blouse. And then we did the shot, and it was quite good, and then we moved on and did three other variations over the afternoon. Mm. And at the end of the day, the creative director picked up the Polaroid that I'd done first, and he said, uh, did we shoot this? And I said to him, no, remember you didn't like the blouse. And he said, oh, that's right. He said, he said it's a pity, he said, because it looks very good to me now. <laughs> now, that story is 5% against the creative director, maybe 10, no more than that. And it's 90% that story against me because I was shooting on four by five camera and I could have, I knew that was a good shot and I should have put through four or five frames. In the time that you wait for the Polaroid, I could shoot five frames, six frames. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so why not do six frames on it? And so the conversation at the end of the day was, when he picks up the Polaroid and he says, did we shoot this? I would say, yeah, I grabbed a few frames of that. Yeah. That's what a professional does. Mm. And I never let that happen again, ever, in my whole life. Yeah. That was tattooed on my brain, branded on my brain, that that should never happen. In other words, I'm doing this every day of my life. A creative director's doing maybe 10 shootings a year, maybe 12, and you know, 12 important ones a year. Uh, and I could be doing 12 important ones in two weeks. Yep. So, and they come to you for your expertise, and therefore you should, at that point, shoot the Polaroid and shoot the film, because mm. you know the shot's good. Mm. And, and as I said, by the time you wait for the Polaroid anyway, I could have shot the damn film. This. So therefore, the story is not against the art director, but it's against it's it's against me. And as I said a few minutes ago, I never let that happen again. Yeah, with like that stuff, with like the advertising in particular, um, like you said, you're working with like art directors or who have been working on this campaign. It could be uh, six months, a year, whatnot. How much do you feel like are you feel like you need to put your input into it? Like, are you like trying to change their creative idea a lot of the time, or like how? Because it, it's a balance. Do you feel like that? Like, because it's like it is their idea, and they're calling you to execute it. But how do you kind of balance those two things? Well, j just as I said before, yeah. that usually what I do, yeah. I usually look at that drawing and I go right after it, tooth and nail. Mm -hmm. In other words, I try and, of course, I try and make it good quality. Yeah. I mean, if it's if it, I, I don't look at it as saying, well, this is a crappy idea, let me do a crappy photograph. I might say this is a crappy idea, but let me do a great photo of a crappy idea, and th that's what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. But then beyond that, if you have another layer that you can add to that, another power that you can add to that, Just deliver as then, much as you, then can. you should be you should be able to deliver it. Yeah. Sometimes you have the power beforehand to change and alter the concept, uh, but a lot of times it's predetermined. Mm. And then one thing I always kind of ask for different photographers is like, do you feel like you need to create work that's like when you're working commercially and you're, you're trying to make a living off this, do you feel like you need to create work that's going to attract clients 
or are you just creating the work that you're inspired by and then kind of put it out there and see what comes back to you? Like, how do you kind of approach that? Well, I, I think in the 70s and 80s that you were trying to do that, that you're trying to say, well, let me shoot something that I think might get me a job. Yeah. Uh, but then after, once I got into the 90s, it, it really, by the 90s it changed and then my whole life changed in the 90s. Once I brought out the book Cyclops, yeah. uh, then the whole thing changed. And then I was viewed in, in a different way and and therefore I very rarely have, in fact, I can't remember the last time somebody was trying to tell me how to take a picture. Yeah. I, I can't remember that. Yeah. Uh, maybe in the past now, 25, 30 years, I can't remember it. Mm. No, it's interesting. So what do you think kind of changed how you mentioned with, with your book Cyclops? And I would mention to anybody listening, go check out that book because it's just such an amazing book. Uh, uh, like what was kind of your approach to that book and what kind of changed after that, how you mentioned like when that came out? Well, I, I think early on, see the picture of, of Hitchcock, where it had a graphic intensity and, and simplicity to it. I think when we did the book, I basically decided with the book, which a lot of people were against, they wanted to make it a book of celebrities. And I said, it's not me, because as a photographer, if I'm doing a definitive book at that time of my work, then it, it, it's, it, it's not me to just do a book of celebrities. Yeah. And we had some strong celebrity shots, but not, in my opinion, strong enough for the whole book. And uh, I said the book is going to be stronger if we include in that lots of personal projects along with the best of fashion, the best of all the Vogues that I shot, mm. uh, the best of all the GQs, the best of Luomo, Vogue, and so on, the best of all of these things, um, and, and put it in like a blender and throw it in there. Yep. And uh, then when I introduced color into that book, it was a little bit, then it really did overdose. It really was ODing. Mm. So I took the color out, and then what was just the black and white. But... Uh, that laid down who I am, you know, my style mm. uh, of who I am. And also conceptual thinking, there was tons of that there, there was tons of imagery there that were like that. Yeah. You know, shows like Monkey with a Gun, you know. There was tons of uh, iconic conceptual pieces in there as well. Yeah. No, I loved it. This the size of it and the, the layout was just amazing. The typography. Um, yeah, David when Carson. Yeah, just amazing. Um, I know you've done plenty of books and you have a new book out. I believe it's called Chaos. Or yeah, Chaos. Chaos, which is this way different than Cyclops. It's this massive book. Um, it's a monster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but with the book stuff, uh, how do you kind of approach those projects? Is it something you enjoy working on the book stuff? And like, how how long does it usually take you to kind of like, I guess, put it together usually? Well, it, basically, chaos took three years. But then the funny thing is, you, you say to somebody, it took three years to get out. So with Tashin, you, you, you might get to them in 2015 and they say, let's do a book. Yeah. And then the book comes in 2018. And so it said, it took you three years. But I have another life of shooting every day and, and so on. So you're not, it, it's not three years. I would say it, of intense work, it's probably three months. Mm. But three months would mean five, six days a week for three months. Yeah. Working on just that, nothing else. No phone calls, no nothing. Mm. But spread over, you spread that time over three years, and then you fit it in when you can, and you take two weeks off and work on it, and you, you go to phase two and phase three and phase four and so on. Yeah. So you get to phase 10 and you're finished. <laughs> I'm sure by the end of that, you're probably just relieved to be done with it at that point. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you're already looking at your next book. <laughs> yeah. you know, you're looking at your next project. Um, yeah, because with your new book, Chaos, what was kind of your goal with this? I believe it's just a limited run, I think, of like 2000. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so when you kind of started this project, what was kind of your goal with that? Um, basically, the, Tashin wanted to do a sumo. So the book is very big. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, in the end, the good news is the book's big. The bad news is the book's big because it's a real monster. Uh, you need two men to lift it sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, but 
uh, Tash and were fantastic. They were really kind of wonderfully supportive in the whole project. And uh, they had, you know, the creative director of Tashin came and he, he, because of that shot that I had done, the monkey with the gun, he said, why don't we cover the book in monkey fur? Uh, fake, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I thought this was a great idea because it turns the book into an art object. And uh, and I I think their production manager Frank is is kind of a genius of the way he kind of uh, put it together. Andy, the art director, who a designer, graphic designer, I worked with on it. Uh, he was he was very solid. And uh, Benedict Tashin's a great guy, and he, mm. they really delivered a nice product. It's very, very good quality. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Uh, I'm glad so it's a retrospective again, yep. but it's a, just a bigger, fatter, color black and white retrospective than, say, Cyclops was. Yep. And also, it's 25 years on. Yeah. So there's a few images from Cyclops in there, but there's a lot of new stuff that mm. is in there as well. Yeah, no, it's exciting. And um, one thing I was kind of curious about talking to you about, um, a lot of the photos I really love of yours is the stuff you do with all different types of musicians. You've shot like, I think like hundreds of album covers and everything. And uh, even one of my favorites, you should photograph Jay-Z, The Blueprint 2, a great album. Um, and I was curious about when you're photographing musicians, um, specifically for like album covers, do you have like a different approach to that versus if you were photographing them for like, I don't say like a magazine article, how do you kind of approach those like album cover shoots? How, do they differ than a normal portrait session? Well, for me, I think the idea of, you know, a, a lot of good album covers, like if, if you look to your right there, there's the Sade oh, yeah. uh, from the Love Deluxe album. Mm. And still people say that was one of the, the, the most iconic, memorable album cover so that approach is that I think an album cover a lot of album covers should look pretty good as postage stamps and pretty good as posters mm. and even pretty good as billboards yep. so I think there has to be a simplicity to them and a instant identification of the person now sometimes you want to you know the talent doesn't want to be on their own album cover so they're quite happy. Yeah. I mean, Bob Dylan used a shot of mine from a from a nightclub uh, that I had shot of a guy with a guitar where you couldn't see the guy's face, uh, but the guy had collapsed on stage exhausted, and uh, he wanted to use that as the cover of his wow. his his album. So, so consequently, that's got nothing to do with what I'm just saying. But a lot of time, I had the approach of simplicity and graphic power mm. as, as being one of the solutions. That makes sense, because if you're looking at, I mean, obviously, people don't really buy physical CDs as much these days, but it's almost like if you're walking by it, you want to be able to just kind of stick out to you. Like it's, oh, absolutely. It's, like a it's the same approach to a really good, say, you know, Vogue cover. There should be that iconic immediacy look to it. Mm. Uh, and uh, over the years, we did some very good covers no that's interesting and with like the music stuff if you're photographing certain musicians do you do you listen to the music before you're gonna photograph them like how do, do you do a lot of research on them or is that not something that you think is important or how do you kind of approach those things you have no idea how much research I do on on people mm. I mean if it's Steve Jobs or Rupert Murdoch or Condoleezza Rice you read as much as you can get and I mean in photographing somebody like Steve Jobs, you're spending probably pretty close to four to five intense hours of really specific research on him. Mm. Nothing, you don't do anything else. You spend five hours on it to, to a day yep. on that. So you're reading, 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 and making notes on him. So therefore, when you communicate with him, even though you might have them for a short time and you're not going to have six hours worth of study time to talk with him about, but there can be one little nugget in there that he knows that you've done work mm. on, on him mm. and that you've done the research on him. Yep. And I do that for a lot of people. 
do you feel like that research, do you do it because you're, you want to put them at ease on set or is it more something you want Communication. to, you want to learn about them? Cause when you're trying to photograph someone and make like an iconic portrait, like you do, is it more about like, you're trying to learn about them to like bring something out of them on the portrait session or is the research more just so you kind of kind of put them at ease when you're working with them both of these things mm. yeah you put it very well and it but it's both of these things not one or the other yeah it, it's to do with communication it comes down to communication that if you've done the research on that person uh wherever possible sometimes you know in the book Morocco, uh the book is on the country of morocco now I photographed the king of Morocco. So therefore you do the research on the king, of course. Yeah. But a lot of times you, you stop, stop your car, you see somebody on the roadside and you go and photograph them. Of course, you don't, you're not doing research on that person because it's a spontaneous shot. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you use a different form of communication. Yeah. You're basically, to put it in simple terms for quick communication, you're super nice to the people. Excuse me. Would it be all right if I took your photo? You're polite to the people and you're interested in the people. Yeah. And you ask the people where they're from, what village they're from, you know, what do you do? You know, where are you going right now and so on. Mm. So you, you, you do some research f that you're learning from them one-to-one -one anyway. Yeah. Uh, but anything that helps you communicate and get a little bit closer to the person and gain the person's confidence so that the person feels comfortable with you taking their picture. Yeah, do you feel like, cause, I mean, looking at all your work, you've photographed so many like iconic portraits, like you mentioned Steve Jobs, and you photographed everyone like Michael Jackson and Mike Tyson. Uh, what do you think the key is to like making those iconic portraits? Is it kind of like you're saying, just that communication, is that? Cause well, it's like, preparation, preparation, yeah. preparation again. Yeah. All of that should fit in together if you just, you know, if I'm doing an interview like this, and at the beginning of the interview I say preparation, preparation, yeah. that runs through the whole thing. Mm. So when you're talking about, say, spending six hours ahead of studying Steve Jobs, and it, it can be six hours and then you're still reading more on the plane when you're going out there. Yeah. So that's preparation, preparation, preparation. Yeah. So the, the more that you work on preparation, I'm not saying, you know, you. you you might have somebody listening to this who says, oh, I'm more of a spontaneous guy. That's fine. I'm not saying, you know, you know, you can say preparation, 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 spontaneity, that's fine. You can add spontaneity. But spontaneity should be something that's in your brain anyway in the same way as the batteries of the camera should be charged. That, that should be a given spontaneity. Mm -hmm. Just because it's preparation, that doesn't mean to say that you don't, you don't think instantaneously on something mm. you know I mean I was I'm driving in the desert with everybody everybody in the cars talking just outside Las Vegas when I did the Las Vegas project and uh, I middle of the day I drove by and I caught a glimpse it was at the time of 9-11 and uh, I caught a glimpse of a neon billboard uh, that said God on it and what the billboard was a moving billboard that said, God bless America. Mm. And behind it was the American flag blowing, right? And I caught a glimpse of that. And at that point, I said, just pull over a second. And uh, in, in a matter of two or three minutes, I found out where the sunset was. And I said, right, let's come back here in three hours. And I've got an eight by 10 camera. And let's do a portrait of this billboard. And we have a great sunset because we knew it was going to be a decent sunset it's in the desert mm. and uh, I knew that I would be able to get a great billboard shot with the word God with the American flag on it so that's what did I prepare to go and shoot that billboard no I never knew it existed yeah I just drove by but it but you should always be looking when you're you should be switched on when mm. you're on a project like that you should be switched on in fact now pretty much I find it difficult not to be switched on. Mm. No, that's interesting. It's like you're prepared and you have a plan, 
but you, you're still like giving yourself like the flexibility to let stuff kind of happen organically and I would imagine that's kind of sometimes when like the magic stuff happens like, specifically with like portraits and stuff because you never know like when I would imagine when someone steps in front of your camera what their mood is on that day and like what can happen you know so yeah that's kind of the exciting part for you I would imagine um, and one thing I was kind of curious about uh, being that you photograph like thousands of people uh, how do you kind of deal with like difficult personalities I'm sure it happens sometimes um, how do you kind of mediate those situations to get through it because at the end of the day you still need to make an amazing photo how do you kind of work with those situations well I have kind of a damp towel approach you know you use a damp towel to, damp towel to put out a fire you know uh, I once put out quite a serious fire by just running to the bathroom and getting a large bath towel, putting it under the shower so it was dripping wet, and I simply dropped the towel right over the, the fire that was there, and it just simply went out right away, you know. Take away the oxygen and water and, and so on. So the, the, basically my damp towel approach is just simply niceness. In other words, you overwhelm the person with niceness, you know. Mm. And then if that doesn't work, Take the shot quickly and get them out of there. Yeah. Because then they don't deserve to have me. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Not that I'm that special in yeah. that way. So I'm not saying they don't deserve me. But if I'm doing research on the person, if I pre-light these things, so all I need to do is a small adjustment in the lighting, um, I find out what their favorite coffee is. I make sure that there are flowers in the dressing room. And you go on and on and on. So if I do all of that for them, for them and the person's difficult... And I'm still nice to them. And on top of that, if they're still difficult again, then at that point, I do it quickly and get them out of there. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And um, one thing I was kind of curious about, like looking at your work, I know you photograph everything like landscapes and portraits, like I said. Um, it seems like you've spent a lot of time in the studio. I was curious about what do you enjoy about working in the studio? And like, how does that approach differ from like if you're shooting on location and whatnot, I guess? Well, I mean, you know, I'm afraid it's a, you know, the studio is a good news, bad news yeah. situation. The, the good news is, in the studio, for the most part, there's nothing there. And, of course, you can, you can build a set, you can create, you know, you, you, you can have a Christmas tree situation where you end up, the Christmas tree comes in and you decorate it. Yeah. So you can do something. But the good news is, in a studio, there's nothing there for the most part. The bad news is there's nothing there. So the, the, that good news, bad news is very, 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 very important. And a lot of times you end up just doing lighting, you know? And uh, you may use a canvas, you may use a psych, you may be against white. And of course, people build sets with, with panels and walls and, and so on, you know? Yeah. And you can bring in chairs and stuff like that. Um, so, the good news is you can make something in the studio from nothing because there is nothing there yeah. and you have to bring it in so you can make it. If you go into a house, it's already a house uh, and you can, of course, redress the house, change the furniture in the house and so on. Uh, but uh, I find nowadays a lot of people want me to shoot in the studio. And I mean, sometimes it gets on, a little bit gets on my nerves. Mm. And uh, I just completed a job that uh, was basically nearly three weeks, and it was all on location. And of course, it was heaven to be on location uh, because I hadn't been there. I was trapped in the studio yeah. for months and months and months, I uh, doing job after job for people in the studio. Yeah. And uh, you know, a, a fashion editor said to me, I, "I I can't get people to do this kind of power." portrait fashion in the studio properly and and she said you do it properly and therefore <laughs> do it again and again you yeah know? and I'm always begging to get out of that situation no oh, that's interesting and um, one thing I was kind of curious about um, being that you kind of started off shooting film and I, I know you shot everything from like four by five to eight by ten and I'm sure you shoot digital now and everything yeah uh, how is that kind of transition going from film to digital? Was that kind of hard transition? Are you uh, still shooting film anymore? Or what's kind of your like approach these days? Well, you know, I think the, the, the question in photography arose between digital and film. Mm. 
Um, film is obviously a very beautiful medium and, and, is, and, and has great beauty. And you, you take a negative into a dark room and print it on a silver paper. It has a, a real beauty to it. And uh, even if you extend that even further into things like platinum palladium printing, it really has a beauty to it. There's no question. Uh, but the transition for photographers to go from film to digital was not this trauma that a lot of photographers had about, oh my God, oh my God, <laughs> sort of thing. Basically, you look through an old Nikon, film Nikon, and you look through the camera, and what's the dominant thing that's in front of you? Is a rectangle. So, okay, now get a digital camera, which I was just finished three weeks working on a, on a phase one camera. Yeah. I look through the back of it, and what's in front of me? A rectangle. You know, and basically I rest my case on that. Yeah. So now there's all these technical things come into place, or the, the grain structure or the pixel structure, and is it is it 50 megapixels? Is it 100 megapixels? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so on. To me, the thing that made the biggest difference to me in the digital revolution wasn't the cameras, which I understand were remarkable and fantastic and the technological improvements were amazing. But the thing that made the big difference to me was the computer. The computer was a striking device for me. And I thought the computer was remarkable. Mm. So for me, it's not so much the cameras, which are amazing. I'm not saying they're not amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm pulling rectangles out of film. I'm pulling rectangles out of a digital camera. And once I feed those images into a computer, for me, the computer's what's interesting. And also, I had the advantage of being in a dark room for 45 years. Yep. So therefore, when I get into a computer and print from a computer, uh, I'm an old-fashioned analog guy who is working with very, very good technical technicians on Photoshop and print production. So therefore, the results are very, very strong and very, very good. Mm. No, that's interesting. And kind of going off that, I was kind of interested, like we're sitting in your studio here now and you have so many amazing prints. Is printing your work something you think is still important to do? Is it something that you do a lot of? And what's your kind of take on that? Because it seems like with digital now, a lot of times people can just shoot photos and they'll just sit on a hard drive or a laptop. And even myself, I found like I don't, I feel like I don't print my stuff as much lately. Do you feel that way or do you still kind of think it's important to print your own work? I mean, I had a, a quote at the beginning of Cyclops, this is 25 years ago, and it's before digital uh, came, came along and with the power that it has. And I said there's a, a magic line that runs from the photographer's eye to the camera to the darkroom and when he makes that print. And to me, it was just simply essential that the photographer made his own print. Now, there's a slight caveat in that, in that one could say that when you make the digital file, you're making the print. And I, I respect that. that you, can, you can say to yourself, okay, I've, on my screen in front of me, my monitor, which is properly calibrated, the image that's on that screen yep. is contrast-adjusted, color-adjusted, retouched, et cetera, et cetera, on that screen. And that image can now be given to a printer. But to me, I think that we brought printing in-house. And it was the printing in-house, it was important that to me, not how it looked on a screen, but how it looked on a piece of paper. So I was very happy to bring it in-house to make sure that the hard copy was, was mine. And it's not hard for a photographer to do that. Yeah. You can bring in printers are now, they don't even, I mean, you can buy an amazing 44 inch wide printer for 3,500 bucks. Yep. Now 3,500 bucks is a fair amount of money but if you're a professional photographer, it's nothing. Mm -hmm. Because basically, you, you can sell, even if you're selling prints at a, a low level of $250, $300, it doesn't take many prints to pay for the printer. 
So therefore, the print, you shouldn't be sending your work out to, to somebody to print for you. Mm. Now, when it gets into bigger prints and you're getting to, say, a six by eight foot print, yep. then you have to go out, but what you can arrive with at, at a printing house that's going to print that for you, what you can arrive with is a six foot by f uh, four foot or bigger test print that you've made. So you arrive with not a digital file, yes you do, but plus you arrive with a, with a hard copy, with a piece of paper, with the image on a piece of paper. Yeah. And, and therefore, when you're handing that over to another guy, he's pretty much got to match exactly something to work on and and even though i might walk in and say oh it looks pretty good but let me see my original yeah you know yeah no that makes sense i think i think it's important and something i've been trying to do more of lately is like print your work because i think you learn a lot from this printing your work you spend more time looking at it like at least i do like you and so well, you pin it on a wall yeah exactly you know there's a terrible thing on like ipads and iphones and all that stuff that you just slide by yeah, your swipe, images swipe you know? swipe and also they look different and of course, you can conceive it as that. You say, you know, I've made an art project here and it's all on my iPhone. This is it. And you stick your iPhone in a gallery and, <laughs> and put it on play a program, you know, and it plays your pictures on an iPhone. Yeah. I mean, you, you can do that. Do you ever take photos with your cell phone these days? Or, or oh, yeah. I take, well, I've, my phone's always filling up with thousands of images. Oh, okay. That's interesting. And sometimes you can, you know. Yeah. You, you can take some nice things, but I don't... I don't particularly, it's an amazing device, the iPhone, to say the least, but I don't, I don't like the lenses on the iPhone. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, they're too distorted and they're too wide. Even, even if you, you know, the iPhone 7 has a little bit more of a telephoto on it, which is great. Yeah. Uh, it even does depth of field now, I saw. You can, like, have the background blur out. Yeah, it's, exactly. Which I, I was like, damn, that's wild. Yeah. Um, but, I, and I think it's fine. It, <laughs> what I like about the iPhone is it made amateurs better better amateur photographers that's what it is mm. and uh one thing i was kind of curious about uh being that you're like such a busy working photographer you you shot like uh hundreds of covers for like magazines like rolling stone and vogue and everything under the sun and you're shooting ad campaigns um did you ever get like burnt out and how important was it for you to take time to like work on these personal projects that you do because uh, you have so many uh personal projects on your website and things like that well, I think I take the time to do personal projects because you want to do it. Yeah. You know, I I think you know you want you want to do it. Uh, so now's the time to do it. I've been a photographer for a long time now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been the, I, basically a a working photographer for forty eight years. A working photographer. Now, if you stretch back into the time when I picked up a camera and began to get serious about it, you can add another four years to that. So that makes 52 years. I'll count it. We'll count it. 52. You know, yeah. 52 years. Yeah. Of, of, so now's the time to do personal projects. You don't, I don't need the money anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but I still, you know, there are advertising projects that I still do en enjoy the challenge. Yeah. You know, I always, a, a lot of, a lot of, I had a lot of friends who were photographers who couldn't stand the advertising thing. Yeah. And I, it, it, strangely enough, yeah, it bothered me sometimes. I used to get frustrated sometimes, so I have to be honest with that. But, but I did like the challenge of it. Yeah. You know, can I do something better than their, silly drawing here you know mm. can I make can I bring that drawing to life but then what can I add on top of that what can I is there something here I can I, I can add and sometimes you get a chance to do that sometimes I was brought the, the Lavazza calendar they came to me and they, they said we have this concept it was two weeks before the shooting and I said what, how do you want this to be shot so it was an advertising job and they said, well, we wanted to do, you know, women sitting at small tables outside of a cafe in New York. And we go to cafe to cafe. And then you do a portrait of a girl with a Lavazza coffee. Mm. And I, I, I was so busy at that time. 
I actually didn't really want to do it. Yeah. I said that. I, I, I said that sounds a bit deadly. And uh, they said, "Well, is there something else you, we want you to do it? Is there something else you could rather do?" And I said, "Just to maybe something a little bit." And I don't know where the idea came from in my head. Right there, I just spontaneously thought of something. I said, "Look, why don't we take?" a coffee cup, a cup, and we make it 10, 11 feet high in fiberglass. Yeah. And we make a cup, we make a saucer, we make a spoon, we make a sugar cube white, and we make a sugar, sugar cube brown sugar, you know? And I said, with these five elements, I can basically take nude girls and shoot them and it'll make them look like fairies, elves around the cups, Yeah, you know? And uh, I said, all you have to do is to make these things. I said, it's gonna be cheaper for you to do that and we shoot it in my studio than paying location fees of five grand a cafe yeah. to you. I, I, can, I can make that cup for 10 grand, you know, for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, let's think about it. So they came back the next day and said, we think it's a great idea, <laughs> let's awesome. do it. So it ended up, we ended up getting a prop designer making a fiberglass model of a huge cup yeah. uh, and saucer and he made a brilliant spoon. Yeah. You know, the spoon was uh, 11 feet high. That's amazing. And the, the, of course, the minute you put a girl next to a, a, a spoon that's 11 feet high, she looks like she's this big, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah. in other words, you can do things. Mm-hmm. You you can do pro, you you can sometimes get a hold of a campaign. Yeah, you know, and I've done that several times. Yeah, that's amazing. You kind of made it your own. Um, and I guess like nowadays, what's kind of got you excited about photography? Anything you're kind of looking to work on, or what's kind of got you uh, inspired right now? You think? Um, I have a project right now uh, that was based a little bit on theater. I wanted to do something that was theatrical, and I started by buying all of these vintage clown costumes uh, from the 1920s. Uh, and when I say 1920s, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, uh, 1918, I found one. And um, it kind of, I did that project and then it kind of morphed into, uh, I had read again, which Midsummer Night Dream, the Shakespeare play. And I, I, I just loved the, the idea of it the kind of women in the woods, you know. So the idea was not to do Midsummer Night Dream with all the characters, because yeah. then it's too fake for me. But uh, but the idea of, of kind of fairies in the wood, I mean, it's it's almost, you think about the Levats I told you about. Uh, so, and, and then when I had been in Scotland doing, I had shot some uh, landscapes particularly simple and neutral landscapes, and I wanted to fuse these landscapes into the bodies of the women okay. and to make that part of this whole Midsummer Night Dream thing. Mm. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what, what we did. Uh-huh. And I've done about 60 of these so far, but it will probably do, it will end up with 100. And the first show of these is in November up in Toronto. Oh, wow, so you're gonna At a do gallery a, a in Toronto, sh- oh. yeah, the Izzy Gallery in Toronto. Oh, perfect, that's awesome. Um, so is the compositing something you've been doing a lot of lately? Is something you kind of enjoy doing, like composite work? Oh, composite work, that's where the computer is sensational. Yeah. Uh, but it requires, I think, I have an advantage due to the darkroom. Mm-hmm. When I, it's not just, I, it's blending, it takes a long time, and it's not just as a double exposure or something. Yeah. It, it's, it's more complex than that. That's exciting. And uh, I guess this is to kind of wrap up, Um, I guess like what do you think kind of is the key to your longevity in this business because starting a photography kind of getting in this thing is hard enough to start but to continually do it for decades on decades what do you think has kind of been the keys to your success success you think I I think I was extraordinarily lucky I had a very good family support at the back of me Uh, you know I had my wife of 57 years behind me the whole time and uh, managing a lot of things. Um, 
even now I have my youngest son is managing all the galleries and museums and he does a brilliant job at that yeah. and a brilliant job at, at managing print production yeah. with me. Uh, he's, uh, he's really got a magnifying glass for an eye <laughs> and uh, with that. So I had a good team behind me, but ultimately I was extraordinarily lucky to find something that I was naturally good at and passionate about. And I was just natural, camera just felt natural to me, straight, I mean, it just felt easy in my hand. It didn't mean to say in the beginning that photography was easy, it wasn't easy, but the passion drives you forward and, and gets you over these bumps in the road, the passion for it gets you over these pitfalls and canyons and gets you down and up the other side. It's the passion that drives you. And then bit by bit, as I said many times, Preparation, 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 and and just keeping going. But if you have to love it, <laughs> yeah. If you don't love it, then you're, yeah. Then it's it's no very hard to make it. No point of doing it if you don't love it. Yeah. Um, but Albert, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, it was a real pleasure and a big deal for me to sit down with you. I've been looking at your work for years, so I can't thank you enough. Um, You're welcome. And uh, for people people listening, where's the best place to check out your work? Uh, probably our website. There's Albert a couple Watson. of thousand images there. Albert, is it, uh, Albert Watson. You know, I don't even know. <laughs> it's AlbertWatson.net. I, mean, I, I know. That's I, I spent many I met many hours on there, so I know. <laughs> so you find it. It's, yeah. a, it's a good. It's a very simple website. Yeah. It's easy to navigate. It's not tricky. Cool. Uh, and there's just there's a lot of images that you can look at there. Right. And we try and change it all the time. So there's, mm -hmm. and you, you, now we just finally, uh, very late, have an Instagram. Yep. So you can you can check out Instagram for updates and news and stuff like that. All right. Uh, from exhibitions and stuff like Perfect. that. Perfect. Well, I'll link it on here. Thanks, Albert. Uh, thank you. So there you have it. That was the Albert Watson interview. I want to thank Albert so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It was a true pleasure getting to speak with him about all his work and experience and everything he's done in photography, uh, which is a lot um, I've been a big fan of Albert's work for years, so I can't thank him enough. And uh, yeah, definitely go check out Albert's website at albertwatson.com. As well, I would mention go check out his book, Cyclops. It's an amazing photo book. I would definitely urge you to go check that out if you can. And uh, yeah, going forward, just want to let you know I'll be having weekly podcasts every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, as well as on my website, alexgagnephoto.com. And also on my Instagram, at Alex Gagne Photo. Thanks so much for listening, and take care.